0: It is a long passage, we've got 54 verses to get through, so in an ideal world I would have had everything up on, on the overhead, But so it would be really good if you had your Bibles open to Acts 27, um, it'll help you follow along uh, and keep up with where we are in the action. Uh, you'll also see on the, on the back of the handout, uh, there's a map there of, of everything that's going on. I found it really helpful looking at the map as I was going through the passage because we've got all these place names that are a bit alien to us, so it was really helpful to, to go along with it. And I should apologise from the outset, I have no idea how to pronounce most of these things, I'm just making it up. so I'm sure there'll be some who will know better than I, so anyway. Um, okay. Okay. When you think of masculine men in movies, so macho type men, um, who, who comes to mind? You're probably, depending on your age group, you're probably thinking of people like um, uh, Rooster Cogburn, or, or or John Rambo, or Jason Bourne. Um, but I was listening to a, a Christian podcast on masculinity of all things, and, and to put the cost to put the discussion into some sort of context. They were discussing about how, in 1 Corinthians 6, a lot of modern Bible verses, like the ESV, remove the word effeminate as being a sin. And so, it's in that context they were discussing examples of masculinity in movies. So, 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 that, that, but they didn't talk about, you know, Dirty Harry or John Wick or somebody. The character they brought up was Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird. So, Atticus Finch, if you know the character, he's this gentle, quiet, single father. And he's the man that they held up as as this example of, of masculinity of manliness. So if you don't know or don't remember the story, it's set in, in the 1930s in rural Alabama. Um, so racism is still very much a real thing. Um, and Atticus Finch is a lawyer, and he's asked to defend Tom Robinson, who's a black man who's been accused of rape. So much of the town is convinced of, of Tom Robinson's guilt, um, but Atticus. Agrees to defend him in court and at one stage quite literally, if you remember the the movie or if you've read the book, but he quite literally stands between the mob and the man in jail um, to to protect him. So in spite of the threats to himself and to his children, Atticus does what he thinks to be right. Um, he stands up to the mobs, and, and the podcast argued that this was a, a quiet display of masculine strength and bravery. And of course, that's not to say that women can't do the same thing. You know, Moira Deeming, she's a good example at the moment. But um, but but to stand up and do what's right in, in spite of everyone else thinking you're wrong. Um, um, this, this Yeah, that's what we're looking at. So he doesn't he doesn't jump up fearlessly into battle, all guns blazing, but he still just quietly stands up to the mob and social pressure, and he does what he, he thinks is right. So with that in mind, let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, it is an awesome thing to to preach from Your Word, and Lord, I just pray that the things I say are helpful and and indeed true. Um, and yeah, just pray help us to get through this passage, this long passage, and. Come to a better understanding of your work in our lives, Lord. So as a refresher, going all the way back to Acts 21, Paul's in Jerusalem. There he's arrested, he's accused of, of defiling the temple and a large crowd stirred up, a temp, uh, stirred up against him. And they're, they're beating him and, and, and trying to kill him when the Roman soldiers turn up. Paul's arrested, and because the crowd is yelling different things, the soldiers can't work out what what's going on, and so they decide to do an examination by flogging. As Paul's being stretched out to be whipped, he asks them, Is it lawful to flog him a Roman citizen when he hasn't even been tried? Uh, which of course it's not. Uh, Paul then tries, Paul then appeals to the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the crowd become violent again. So the soldiers take him to the barracks to protect him. And here, in Acts uh, 23.11, God says to Paul, "'Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome.'" So Paul then appears before Felix and Festus, and as is his right as a Roman citizen, he appeals to Caesar. So in Acts 25.12, "'Then Festus, when he conferred with his council, answered, "'To Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go.'" So jumping forward to our text today, this is where we are with Paul headed to Rome. So verse 1, Acts 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Notice straight away we're using the word we again, so Luke's back with them. So Luke, we haven't had the word we since uh, chapter 21, so this indicates that that the, the guy... He's writing the text as in Luke. He's, he's joined the party again, and also we don't have we don't know how many prisoners there are, but a cohort's 80 soldiers. So whether whether there's a large group of prisoners, which doesn't seem likely because it said some prisoners, or whether whether the soldiers are on the move anyway and just they just happen to have prisoners allocated to them to guard on their way. So verse two, and embarking on a ship from adromitium which is about to sail. The ports along the east coast, along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So, Adram- Adramitium, as you can see, you'll hopefully see it on the map. That's just a town, off, off just just north of Ephesus. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But um, I'm, I'm, um, yeah, and we're not actually told where the ship embarks from, it's just as we we, we disembark. So, it's likely Caesarea which again you can see on the map, and mentioning um, Adamitrium and uh, where the ship's from, that's probably just one of those um, historical tidbits that Luke Luke likes to insert in. Back in Acts 19, if you remember the episode where Demetrius the the silversmith starts up a riot against Paul and his companions, um, that's where we meet Aristarchus for the first time. So... Aristarchus has at least been with Paul uh, on a few journeys, we don't know how many, Um, and he's not actually mentioned again, so whether he disembarks early or just for the sake of the storytelling, there's no need to mention him again, we're not sure. Verse 3. The next day we put in at, at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Julius's kindness shows through. In Sidon, there was presumably a Christian community, so when the ship berths there, Paul's allowed to go visit. The fact that Paul, a prisoner, is given leave to go visit his friends, suggests that the centurion places a great deal of trust in Paul. He may have had soldiers go with him, but he's in a strange city with, with friends around him, so they could facilitate an escape if they wanted uh, But Matthew Henry, his, his comment on this is that Julius was convinced of Paul's innocence and the injury done him, and therefore, though Paul was committed to him as a prisoner, he treated him as a friend, as a scholar, and as a gentleman. Verse 4. So keep following along on the map. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Citrus because the winds were against us. Um, so they got a headwind, and so they sailed in behind Cyprus to get some relief from the wind. And when we when Excuse me. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myrna in Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandra sailing for Italy and put us on board. So the land in Myrna, and need to find another ship to make the rest of the journey. Um, so Alexandra was one of the great trading ports of Egypt, so that it would have been sailing up the coast with, with it its cargo. Verse 7. We sailed slowly for a number of, di- a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Salome. So, if, if they're sailing slowly, it's either little wind or a, or a headwind. Um, and because they're sailing under the lee of Crete, they're getting shelter from the wind, that suggests that there's a headwind. So, they're using Crete to, to just get a bit of relief so they can sail easier. But this doesn't solve the problem. Verse 8. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, which was near the city of Lassia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over. So, so the fast here would be the Day of Atonement, which is Yom um, Kippur. And like a lot of these Jewish feasts, it didn't move around on the calendar. Um, I read one thing suggesting it could have been October 5th. But the dangerous sailing, the dangerous winter sailing period was mid-September to mid-November. And so they're obviously well into this time frame, so there's, there's storms and that thing about, so they're debating whether they should, um, yeah, say how long. So, verse 10, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbour was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbour in Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So the safe sailing season has passed. And if you remember in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul mentions that he's been shipwrecked three times, so he realises the danger of what it can be. Excuse me. Um said so he realised the danger and that the sail on could mean loss of, of life and cargo. Um, this can't be a revelation from God because as we, as we see later on, um, it's not quite right. It's not right at all actually. But this is Paul as an experienced traveller giving, giving his advice. But he's outvoted. The, the pilot and the ship owner, they decide to press on, mainly because... They, they don't see the port of Fairhalens, Fair Havens Fair as a suitable place to spend the winter. So they think if they get around to Phoenix, which faces in, in the other direction, uh, that'll be a safer harbour to put the winter in. Just as a bit of an aside, I've got this, I've got a great um, biography on Captain James Cook. That the, the, the prologue of the book is quite a detailed, dramatic a, account of, of, of the endeavour caught in a shore, uh, caught in a storm and being blown towards a reef. Um, Uh, and and it it gives a really good account of the sailors' desperate attempt to stop the ship being washed up against the reef because if it does, um, the ship's going to get smashed apart on the reef and the sailors themselves, while they're drowned, they'll be dashed on the the reef as well. So the author, in giving the prologue, is just giving an indication of of how uh, desperate and dangerous sea travel could be in those days. And so in Acts 27, that's where this narrative narrative takes us now. The ship's caught in a storm and we see the desperate attempts of the sailors to save the ship and themselves. But the journey starts off well at least and with a favourable wind they set out. So verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and driven along. along. Um, my brother's an avid sailor, um, and modern sailing boats can handle storms and wind much better than these old-time ships, but, but even a modern sailing ship can't sail into a headwind. Um, and of course, the bad, bad storms, even with the most modern sailing ships, can still be quite deadly. So verse 16, Running under the lee of Crete of a small island called Corda, Managed with with great difficulty to secure the ship's boat, so the ship's boat would have been a small, a small boat, a small dinghy, towed along behind the ship, and um, they used that that, that uh, the advantage of being in, in the um, the shelter of the wind to pull that boat aboard in safety. Uh, and verse 17, and after hoisting it up, they use supports to undergird the ship. So undergirding the ship, they're literally tying ropes or cables around the ship to hold it together. Then, fearing they would run aground on the surface, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Now, you can see on the maps, uh, down the bottom of the map, you've got Libya, Cyrene, and then there's the sandbanks pa- sand of surface. So I gather there's actually a couple of... It only shows one there, but there's a couple of big, these big sandbanks down in that rough area. And um, they're actually quite a way out to sea. It's shallow water. If a ship ran aground there... They're basically stuck out, literally in the middle of nowhere, with no way of getting off and no way of getting, of getting help. So verse 18. Since they were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So this, this, this shows how desperate things are getting. getting. They're having to start to throw out the cargo and the spare tackle off the ship. Verse Verse 20. When neither sun nor stars had appeared for many days and no small tempest swayed upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So here they are. They're in a storm, they're in a ship in the middle of the sea and at this stage there's 11 days uh, and they've seen neither land nor even the sun or the stars so they can't navigate, have no idea where they are let alone how long the storm's going to last. They'd be physically physically exhausted from lack of sleep, um, unable to eat, and just the sheer hard labour of managing the boat. And don't forget they're in fear of the terror of their lives through through all this, so they'd be they'd be emotionally wrecked as well. They are lost and without hope. Some of you might have come across C. S. Lewis's book A Grief Observed, which he writes after the death of his beloved wife. So um, I'll just read out a, a quick snippet from that, so just bear with me. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claim upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcome with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been in that situation where you have felt alone and abandoned? Some of you will have seen um, when the the church camp was on and it's been passed around a little bit but Andy May's sermon on Psalm 88 if you remember that psalm concludes with with the words and darkness was my only friend. So even God's own hymn book has this psalm that is bleak and dark with the psalmist crying out into the void and into the silence and seemingly without hope. But deep down, we we know that there is still some hope, even if we don't feel it. We know God is there somewhere, even if we can't find him. Psalm 88, despite his bleakness, is still a cry out to God. But for those who don't know the Lord, like the sailors on Paul's ship, where, where do you turn to when things go bad? Um... At my grandfather's funeral, um, we're talking about it afterwards, and one of my family members, um, he was telling us how he saw a, a huntsman on the wall at the back of the, the church. Oh, sorry, at the front of the church. He took hope in that because he saw in that husband our grandfather telling him everything was going to be all right. And I can see why like, your expressions. is, yeah, what a bizarre thing. You're taking hope in the afterlife and seeing a spider on the wall. So... That, that suggests to me how devoid of hope people really are. Um, and so, our sailors here, um, yeah, there's, there's a loss of hope. They've got nowhere to go. They really are calling out into the void. So back to our journey. <coughs> um, so yeah, so, so, so Paul, the man they'd all previous, previously ignored about the journey, he stands up and gives them hope. So verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time. Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet I now urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Unlike earlier, when Paul was giving his opinion of what was going to happen on the journey, this is a direct revelation from God through an angel. So it's not wishful thinking or a false hope that Paul's giving here, but this is direct from God himself. So verse 27, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted all those who sail with you. So do not be afraid. Is this simply um, an encouragement or is it a command? Um, To me, that goes back to Philippians 4.6, where Paul tells his readers, The Lord is at hand, so not to be anxious. Don't be afraid. Trust in me. When things are, when, when things are at their worst, do we have this sort of trust? Will we have faith in God? Verse twenty-seven. So take, <coughs> excuse me. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that will be exactly as I have been told. But, me, but we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected they were nearing land. I find that interesting. They suspected they were nearing land and couldn't see it. Perhaps they could hear breakers. Something else was going on. So verse 28, they took soundings and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on they took soundings again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing they might run aground on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out the anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the sailors cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So things are getting quite desperate. The sailors themselves are trying to basically take off. Um, F.F. Bruce, in his commentary, he wonders if the sailors mistook Paul's meaning because to to cast off what was effective to their lifeboat, you know, is that a wise decision? Um, Because this this could have been used at some stage to ferry people to shore. But whatever the case, it did force everyone to stay on board um, uh, and stay with the ship just as, as Paul had warned. So verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, "Today is the fourteenth day; you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you." And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks in the presence of God, and in the presence of God, for all he broke it and began to eat. Sort of harks back to the Lord's Supper, there, doesn't it? Verse thirty-six. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons on the ship. Some people question the number of people, but um, if you know the historian Josephus, he, he wrote in, in about the same century, he talks about him being on a shipwreck with 600 people on board. So verse 38, when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing the wheat out into the sea. So, so by jettisoning the rest of the cargo, making the boat lighter. Obviously, the boat's going to float higher in the water and they've got a much better chance of being able to wash up onto the beach. <clears throat> Verse 39. Now, when it was day, they did not recognise the land, but they noticed the bay with the beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the rope that tied the others, then hoisting the foresail, to the wind, they made their way for the beach. So this time, the wind's blowing in their favour, and seeing what they hope is the safety of the beach, they just let the ship go and head in that direction. Verse forty-one. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, and the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. So the soldiers are responsible for the prisoners, and and. The times being what they were, they prefer to kill them all rather than risk anything getting away. Verse 43, But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that they were all brought safely to land. It had seemed that all would be lost, that Paul's mission to Rome was indeed under threat. But instead, this became an opportunity for 276 souls to experience God's saving grace and power. They had escaped with their lives and nothing else, and it was all for Paul's sake. Some years ago, probably 25 years ago, um, uh, me and Robin were holidaying up on the south coast of New South Wales, and Robin became uh, very ill um, to the point where late one night uh, we got to take in the hospital. So during that long night, um, the doctors actually decided we need to send him to Sydney. And know, uh, what am I supposed to do? I'm, uh, they're going to send my sick wife 500 kilometres north for who knows how long, home's 500 kilometres in the other direction, our daughter's being babysat by her grandmother, and I've, you know, I've got to get back to work as well. That probably downplays it a bit but that, oh, it was a very, very stressful time for me and I remember sitting in the hospital room tears down my face trying to pray but as we mentioned before all I found was the boy I just found this, this. I just felt desperately alone and deserted. Anyway, without getting the details through a series of circumstances uh, Robin was stabilised and the doctors allowed me to drive her home to, to get medical attention as soon as we got back. But here's the point. After that event, I was speaking to our pastor about it and how I felt during that long night in the hospital on my own. And after a few minutes of thought, he said to me um, to look back and look for the times I can see God at work. And even now I can see four very specific, I guess, interventions, events where God was definitely at work, where things turned very much in our favour. not like to make the journey home, and to get home successfully and to get the medical help.
1: So I'm sure there was much more going on,
0: even though I felt alone and abandoned through that whole journey back to Melbourne and through that night in hospital. Um, as my pastor pointed out to me, when I had a look, no, no, God was very much there. And so it was with Paul and his companions, um, even though during the storm they probably did not feel like it. Um, they were very much being cared for by God. Now here we are in uh, chapter 28, verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it began to rain and was cold. So these locals, they see these shipwrecked, cold, wet, and exhausted people, and they build a fire and welcome them. I actually find it interesting that Luke records this as unusual kindness. In our culture today, people don't see Christianity as offering anything useful or very valuable um, to the world around us. They don't realise the values and the morals and the ideas that come from Christianity, they just simply take for granted. That offering these shipwrecked people warmth and shelter that it's seen as an unusual kindness, how different the world was back then, today we see to do anything else would be callous and cruel but to the culture, to a pre-Christian culture um, it's almost well you know, why would you bother, why would I put myself out so verse 3 uh, when, when, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand as an interesting side note I might be wrong in this, but from what I was reading, there's actually no venomous snakes on Malta, at least not now. But that's not to say there weren't. Um, According to legend, Ireland had lots of venomous snakes until um, St Patrick drove them out. But certainly the the people of Malta, they saw this, they obviously saw this snake as a deadly snake. Um, Yeah, so verse 4. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook the creature into the fire, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Um, I guess we're not directly told if Paul surviving the snake bite was divine intervention. Um, to make another long story short, uh, way back when um, I was bitten by a death adder. It um, took me off to hospital, anyway, through a series of events, they, they decided not to give me any anti-venom. But as you know, a death adder bite can be quite fatal, but the worst symptoms I had was double vision. Um, so whether Paul surviving the snake bite is divine or natural, we're not actually told, but, but I guess the assumption of most is it was, it was a miraculous event. But notice the change in the locals. They went from saying that, saying that the snake bite is proof that Paul's an evil man to saying, well, he must be a god. Verse 7. Now, in the neighbourhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed and, putting his hands on him, healed him. When this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They honoured us greatly, and when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever whatever we needed. The symptoms of Publius's father match a common sickness pre-antibiotic days called Malta fever, which is caused basically by microbes in goat's milk. So now it certainly seems that, well, from what the text tells us, that Paul laying hands on this man this is just a miraculous event. But from my limited resources, that the word cure in verse nine is actually related to medical treatment. So, was this our good doctor Luke? Did he have a hand in these cures? Um, or were they miraculous uh, like like the others, like um, Publius' father. Well. The other thing I, another question I had was while they're given plenty of provisions and the, and the people are people, right, the, of the text actually doesn't mention God, being Um So I'm not sure what that's about. These, these are just a couple of questions I had in my mind that I couldn't quite get answers to, but I just found it a bit curious. So I might be making too much of it, but just thought I'd mention it. But at the end of the day, the result is that Paul is safe, and he's heading for Rome, just as God said he would. In To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus Finch stands up against the mobs the threats to himself and his children to do what is right and what needs to be done. He tells his daughter that if he doesn't do it, he won't be able to hold his head up in town. In spite of the danger of the fear, guess he is doing the right thing. He has the mo- right, right motivation. So he has the right... He's doing the right thing, but his motivation is so he can hold his head up in town. So it's pride. It's pride that motivates out of And in a worldly perspective, that's probably something that's seen as a good thing. Paul goes through a lot as well. So going to 2 Corinthians 11, he's not only shipwrecked in our story, but if if we go back a few years, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, there was at least four we know of. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." So from people, he's whipped, he's beaten, he's stoned, he's got the Jews and the Gentiles after him, there's false brothers in the church, within the church itself causing problems. Um, he's been shipwrecked, well, at least four times. He's been adrift for a day and a night at the sea. Um, there's rivers, there's floods, he's risking drowning, there's, he's, he lacks food, he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's cold and exposed. Unlike Atticus out of the finch. It's not a sense of personal pride that drives Paul. It's his obedience and loyalty and love for Christ that drives him, his, his love for his Lord and Saviour. And even more, Paul does this knowing what's awaiting him. Back in Acts 20.23, 20, Paul says, I am now going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. Author Tim Bailey says that all the outlines of Acts he's seen are far too complicated. He says Acts can be summarised in one sentence. Paul preached in one city, a riot ensued, but God protected him and he started again in the next city. So I I can't help but wonder, but how many preaching publicly today would cause a riot? Would, Would end up being a riot? Um, when we see public priests today, a lot of them give a, a gentle, soft, watered-down vision of the gospel and of Jesus. Um, a, a, a palatable Jesus that no one would get offended by, let alone a riot because caused over. Getting back to Paul, it seems he wasn't a stoic or a passive person. In Acts 19, God tells Paul, do not be afraid, but go and speak and do not be silent. So why would the Lord tell Paul not to be afraid unless he is afraid? As we read in in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul faced all sorts of trials and troubles. Um, In the event we just read, he's he's, he's on board this ship for two solid weeks and I imagine he'd be afraid in spite of the promises of God. He's still a man. He's still on his boat. He's still in this storm for for, for a fortnight with no idea what's going to happen. So I can't help but think that this would have to take some sort of toll on him. But as Baskin Henry says, Paul looked upon God as rightful owner who has sovereign and incontestable title to him and dominion over him. This harks back to one of Vicky's songs. Because God has made us, not we ourselves, therefore we are not our own, but his. We are therefore bound to serve him, to devote ourselves to his honour and employ ourselves in his work. Or as Paul himself puts it back in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. To obediently follow Christ... It is, as with Paul, to know what, to know that affliction awaits us. And Paul could, could face all of this because as we read from Acts twenty seven twenty five, I have faith in God that will be exactly as he told. So we'll finish off in 1 Peter 1. So if you just flick your Bibles to 1 Peter 1. So um, Peter addresses this passage to the elect exiles. So the word exiles here means people who are sojourning in a strange place. They are not residents where they live, but they are out somewhere else longing for their true home, um, as we do, And because this is not our home. Our home is with our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So 1 Peter 1, and I'll start at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that is perished, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though now you have not seen him, you love him. Though now you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter reminds us that we will be grieved by various trials, that being a Christian does not shield you from these things but that this actually refines our trust in God and we are being guarded for salvation through faith in God's power. Um, In in A grief Observed, C.S. Lewis has a few more quotes to just just indulge me, Um, just backing up what Peter says. God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He already knew it. It was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us occupy the dock, the witness box and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. He, his only way of making me realise that fact is to knock it down. It's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you're merely using it to tie a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then discover how much you really trusted it? And lastly, you never know how much you really believe anything until it's truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life or death to you. So Paul was able to face to face everything he did, both attacks from other people and natural disasters, the elements, because he did have faith in God, and whatever happened to him, he was safe in God's care. We haven't been promised an easy life or even a long life, but what we have been promised is eternal life. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we do thank you that because of your great mercy we are indeed born again into this living hope that we will not perish um, sorry, we won't be born into living hope and that hope will not perish fade or be defiled and that you are indeed guarding us we recognise that we do live in a broken world Uh, we will face Um, Trials from the consequences of our own sin, as well as the sin sin of others, and also where disease, sickness, as well as the natural elements and disasters, can wreak havoc on our lives. Lord, never let us forget, especially when we when we do feel deserted and alone, uh, where we cannot feel Your presence, where even prayer can seem hollow and pointless. Never, never let us forget that You are there with us, Lord, that You are working in all the circumstances and events in our lives to make us more dependent on you, uh, that you are refining and purifying our faith, removing the dross and our idols to help us see you more clearly and to have trust in you more. In Christ's name, amen.